Welcome back for another episode of the Post Money Plan Podcast. My name is Dallas Post, and I am your host. As you know, I believe empowerment comes through knowledge, so my purpose here is to inform, educate, and stimulate thought within personal finance, economics, and investing. You can find me at postmoneyplan.com or search the Post Money Plan in the iTunes podcast app or in Google Play. All right, so we are speaking again with my friend George about investing this week. Last week, we discussed what all had happened in the markets and honed in on the role that betting against volatility has played in the mini crash that happened early in February. There was an ETN, an exchange-traded note, XIV, that people used to bet against volatility. That ETN blew up on February 6th and is going to be liquidated on February 21st, meaning investors, including myself, unfortunately will have lost about 95% of the value of what the investments were worth back on February 2nd, which is pretty horrible if you think about it. So this obviously calls to the forefront of concern what makes for safe investments. Nowadays, there's a million different investment vehicles you can use to invest your money. So it can be really confusing and you don't want to get hit when going through the minefield. But with the XIV ETN in the spotlight, It's appropriate to focus in on exchange-traded products and their associated risks. So we're going to go further into that today. Just to go a little deeper on what the biggest market shaker was that shook the market, the ETN XIV, which is an exchange-traded note. That's what an ETN is, which Mm -hmm. is a slightly different thing than an exchange-traded fund or ETF. The difference being that the index or the fund has to be created somewhat synthetically or it's not just a basket of stocks like an ETF would be and has the underlying stocks in it. But in the case of this inverse volatility ETN, Credit Suisse was the issuer or the sponsor of this fund. And in order to create the fund, they had to constantly be buying or selling futures on the VIX creating the stock, you could say, synthetically. Right. And investors, certainly retail investors, can be forgiven for thinking there's not much difference between ETFs and ETNs. When you look at most ETFs and ETNs that track the same index, you look at their chart history, it looks like they do pretty much the same thing. But when it comes down to it, and when it matters the most, like in these extreme circumstances, there are quite stark differences between ETFs and ETNs that investors should be aware of. And they can lead to rather different or in some cases, completely different outcomes for investors. You know, to illustrate the point, you have two almost identical products that track pretty much the same index, XIV and SVXY. They're both purported to short the front to fix futures and keep rolling every day that trade and their investment objective was the same. It's to give negative one times the performance of the long front month futures index. Now, if you looked over the course of their lifetime before February 5th, their investment performance was almost identical. You could check their charts. They look almost the same. However, because one was an ETF and one was an ETN, when their underlying index spiked by close to 100%, the fine print really kicked in for XIV. This is evident in the investment performance since. 
they both started out the month at roughly the same level around maybe 130, 140. And today, XIV trades around five or six dollars, whereas SVXY trades more than double that. So you have a two times difference in the investment outcome. You know, what's more, XIV is going to be terminated around the 22nd of February, whereas SVXY is going to live on. So investors in SVXY will continue to be invested in this trade, whereas XIV investors will be given a cash settlement based on the NAV next week. So very different behavior under stress. And that's due to the fact that the ETN had some additional fine print and was structured differently. And this has a huge implication for ETN investors. At their heart, ETNs or exchange-traded notes are a promise by the note sponsor or issuer, in this case Credit Suisse, to deliver the investment performance stated in the prospectus. So in this case, tracking the short volatility index. So investors in the note don't actually hold the underlying securities, you know, which may come as a surprise. There's no claim to any securities. The only claim is to the creditworthiness of Credit Suisse. So if Credit Suisse happened to go bankrupt, the note would also go along with it. And any investors in the note would all of a sudden have to get in line with all the other debt holders of Credit Suisse and would have a claim on Credit Suisse's assets, but not on the underlying assets of the index or that comprise the index. An ETF, on the other hand, is an exchange-traded fund. And in the case of an ETF, the underlying assets are actually owned in a trust. And any shareholder of an ETF owns a claim to those underlying assets. So anyone who, let's say, owns SPY, which is the biggest ETF that tracks the S&P index, any shareholder in SPY owns underlying shares in all of the 500 shares that the SPY trust has invested in. That way, if the ETF sponsor goes bankrupt, State Street in this case, the ETF investors in SPY will still hold their stake in the shares of the underlying um, ETF and not be adversely affected by the bankruptcy of State Street. Yeah, so basically the big key point here is that there is, in fact, a important difference between ETFs and ETNs that most of the time you're not going to see, but in extreme circumstances, in the case of potential market turmoil or bankruptcies or insolvency, then those differences are going to highlight, and that's where ETNs could potentially be falling apart. Absolutely. And that, actually, I would generalize your statement even further and say that there can be big differences between one exchange-traded product and another based on the subtleties of the investment objectives and the structure of the product that tend to be laid out in the investment's prospectus. So really, the only way to truly protect yourself against these types of risks is to very, very carefully read the prospectus of any exchange-traded product that you're considering investing in. Having said that, very few retail investors actually read the full prospectus. It's almost like trying to read the legal disclaimer before clicking update on your iPhone software update. No one ever does it. And they're not really written in a way that's conducive to being read. Prospectuses are usually very, very thick documents 
filled with legal jargon and financial jargon that most people probably don't understand or appreciate fully. And people tend to invest in exchange-traded products, mostly ETFs, but ETNs as well, based on their name and the index that they try to track and their sort of broad investment objectives, which may be described in a one-liner somewhere, like maybe in the summary on Google Finance or something like that. You know, I think most people make their investment decisions based on whether they like the index that the fund is trying to track, and they like the investment objectives of the index, and they like the historical performance of the fund, rather than reading the fine print of the prospectus. And, and this is where investors can unwittingly get into trouble. You know, it's no comfort to tell XIV investors this, but the note XIV actually behaved exactly as expected. Oh, that makes me feel so much better. Or, 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 or I should say exactly as intended. It tracked its index very well. And when the threshold of losing 80% of its NAV was breached, it triggered the acceleration clause as expected. However, a lot of people were not, <laughs> were not expecting it. And before we delve, instead of necessarily delving into one arcane exchange-traded product, in particular XIV, it might be more helpful to talk about the general risks that are faced by retail investors investing in exchange-traded products that they may not be aware of. I mean, anyone who's investing in a broad, large-cap U.S. stock index tracker, whether it's an exchange-traded fund or an exchange-traded note, expects to be exposed to large-cap equity risk. They expect to lose money when the S&P goes down and gain money when the S&P goes up. No, I However, expect to make money um, at all times. <laughs> well, okay, well, you should only invest in cryptos and XIV then. <laughs> <laughs> but there are several fairly common risk factors that people may not always be aware of when investing in exchange-traded products. You could probably group them into a few different categories. One of them, which I think you've touched on a little bit, is illiquidity. Another one would be tracking error of the fund. A third related one would be inverse and leveraged ETFs. A fourth would be ETNs, which, as we've stated before, have very important differences from ETFs. And the fifth that I can think of off the top of my head would be closed-end funds, or CEFs, which are quite a different animal altogether. So very quickly, liquidity, let's say you have two ETFs that track the same index and have the same investment objective. And since they're ETFs, the investor has a claim to the underlying stocks, and they, they track a broad stock index. So they should more or less behave exactly the same way. However, you might notice if you look at the chart that one moves a lot more frequently than another, meaning that the price of one updates a lot more responsively than the price of the other to moves in, in the underlying index. And this could be because of the size and the volume traded of one ETF compared to the other. If an ETF is very widely traded like SPY, it will track its index very closely and its price will update based on movements in, in the underlying index very responsibly. However, if you compare it to another ETF that is traded with less volume and maybe has far fewer assets under management, you will notice that the price won't move. It may move like a step function almost. It'll be flat for 30 minutes, then spike up by half a percent or spike down by half a percent based on one trade or a small group of trades that's happened in the market. 
this is something that you'll commonly notice with smaller ETFs, ETFs with assets of under a billion dollars, say. So investors should be wary of buying into ETFs with small sizes, low assets under management, and correspondingly lower trading volume. Now, while one might not care too much about half percent lag here and there, this difference in liquidity can really rear its ugly head when the market gets panicked. In a highly volatile situation, these ETFs, their price can become a lot more dislocated from its underlying index than a very widely and liquidly traded fund. So if one were to try and avoid this liquidity risk, you should stick to the larger, more well-known ETFs and ETFs from more reputable and well-known providers such as Vanguard and BlackRock's iShares and State Street's SPY-type ETFs. When you go to the smaller ETF providers, the less well-known or more boutique ETF providers, you will see much more thinly traded, much less liquid products. And in times of volatility, their performance will be noticeably different from the underlying index. And that's an unexpected risk. The second one would be leveraged and inverse ETFs. Leveraged and inverse ETFs are typically trying to replicate the negative performance or the two times or three times performance of their underlying index on a daily basis. And the point about daily basis or daily tracking is really key here because this can have an unexpected and potentially unintended investment outcome over a longer time horizon. If someone invests in a double long S&P ETF, they might expect that if the S&P returns 20% over one year, that they would get about 40% in one year. It's hard to fault someone for thinking that. However, due to the daily nature of the replication and the rebalancing of the fund, the performance can vary very greatly from this 40% expectation. And there's actually, a, I would call it a perverse consequence of the nature of this daily rebalancing in that the actual outcome of investing in a leveraged or inverse ETF is dependent on the path that the index takes. So it doesn't only depend on the start and the end point, but it also depends on the way that the underlying index gets from A to B. And just to illustrate this point with a sort of extreme example, let's say you invest in a double long ETF and the underlying index starts at 100. It goes down to 80, so it drops 20% one day. And then it jumps back up to 100 the next day. So it jumps by 25% the second day. If you invested in a double long ETF, you might expect that you'd also be flat. But due to the volatility of the underlying index, even though the, the start and end point is exactly the same, you will actually lose money if you invest in the double long product. I'll just give you the maths underlying that. If the double long index starts at 100 and drops by 40%, which is twice the 20% of the first day, it'll go down to, to $60. And then if it increases from $60 by 50%, which is twice the 25% of the second day increase, it'll only get back to $90. Whereas with the underlying index, you're flat. With the double long product, you're down 10%, which I, I think is remarkable. So if you invest in a double long product and there's a lot of volatility in the underlying index, you may lose a substantial amount of money, even though the start and the end point of the underlying index is the same. 
And there's a similar perverse effect with inverse ETFs due to the same mathematics underlying them. So this simple and extreme example sort of illustrates what can happen over over a long period of time, you know, with a lot of volatility. So that's another risk that investors in inverse and, and leveraged ETFs should be aware of. Uh, what were the last couple? I, I forgot. I forgot what I, I said. Oh, ETNs. ETNs we've already covered, but I think investors need to be aware of the fact that they're not investing in an underlying pool of assets. They're investing in the creditworthiness of the ETN sponsor. I was going to talk about closed end funds, but another category also comes to mind, and that is ETFs that hold not stocks or bonds as are underlying, but commodity futures or currency futures. For instance, there's a long oil fund, there's a short yen fund or something like that. These indexes can be subject to a slow and steady decay in their price based on the role of the futures curve that we've discussed earlier. And I won't go into the details too much, but you may find that instead of tracking the price of oil by investing in a long oil fund, you might be slowly and steadily losing money every day due to this decay. And you, you might not realize it at first, but over a long period of time, the drag can add up to a substantial loss, even though the underlying asset that you're trying to track, namely the price of oil, doesn't move much. And then I'll talk just briefly about closed-end funds, which are pretty different in nature from ETFs or indeed ETNs or mutual funds. Closed-end fund is a fixed pool of assets. So if more people invest in it, they don't create more shares and buy more assets. So it, it's a fixed pool of assets, and they're typically actively managed, and they also typically use leverage, in some cases, rather a lot of leverage. It's not uncommon to have a fund that's 40% leverage or so. And whenever you have a product that uses leverage explicitly to juice their returns, you should always expect, first of all, more volatility in the returns of the net asset value. But you should also expect that you may have a tracking error due to due to the leverage, as I discussed, with leveraged and inverse ETFs that comes from the volatility. And you can also expect that the performance of your fund will be influenced by interest rates, regardless of what the underlying fund invests in. Because leverage is generated by borrowing money to buy more of the underlying assets. So if the cost of borrowing changes, then your net asset value is going to be influenced. So regardless of whether your closed-end fund is a bond fund or an equity fund or something else, you're going to have interest rate exposure. You may have quite a significant exposure to interest rates. And one other thing about closed-end funds is their net asset value can deviate from their price. And in fact, it commonly does. If you look at the price history and the net asset value history of a given fund, you can see that they don't always track each other. And funds can trade at a discount or a premium. And sometimes this discount or premium can be quite substantial. Some people, in fact, even trade the funds based on their asset premium or discount. So you should certainly be aware of this aspect of the investment before buying into it. I would certainly say that closed-end funds have more dimensions of investment risk to them than ETFs in general. And they're harder to understand. And certainly, I would recommend a lot more research before investing in any of them. So just going over the list off the top of my head, that's pretty much all I can think of in terms of unexpected investment risks in retail exchange-traded products. 
All right, I'm going to have to run here, but just to draw some summary conclusions out of everything that we've been saying, to me, it stands out that it's very important for people when they're investing to be aware of what they're investing in. And even if you're not a sophisticated investor or well-educated in finance or the markets, it's still important to know what it is that you're owning and holding and being told to put your money in because there's a big difference between one thing and another. Between an ETF and an ETN, you could have very different results in the end. So even if you feel like you don't have a lot of time, maybe you don't want to read a prospectus, but you do need to do some homework and some finding out on what the difference is between this and that and what it is that you're exactly being told to buy or sell or things like that. I think it's very important. Absolutely. I would always reiterate that to anyone considering investing in a given product, especially one that they may not fully understand or appreciate. I think that the recent events in the market and the exchange-traded market really kind of drive this point home. They, they underscore the value of reading through the fine details of the prospectus. And, you know, I think they're a wake-up call. This is a wake-up call to people who may be a bit complacent about the nature of the investments that they're holding. I think it's a really, it's a case of buyer beware. You should really understand what you're buying. And if you don't understand it, I would strongly recommend you just walk away and stick to things that you're comfortable with. You're comfortable that you understand the workings of. I think a good place to start for ETFs is the larger, more well-established ETF providers with the larger AUMs, Vanguard and iShares and, and Spider. But the further you stray into more exotic territory, the more homework you have to do. And I think that the amount of homework increases exponentially because you really have to get into some of the fine print of the prospectuses in order to guard yourself to educate yourselves of the risks that you're taking on by investing in these things. I can't stress enough how how important it is to understand what you're investing in before you pull the trigger. Yes, I very much agree. I think that's a good note to end on. One other thing, I think it's a good selling point for your podcast because you're attempting to provide more financial education and financial literacy to a broad swathe of your listeners. And I think listening to this podcast and others will certainly help to educate people on the unforeseen dangers of investing. And as Warren Buffett said, when the tide goes out, you see who's swimming naked. <laughs> yeah. and you may not always want to see who's swimming naked. <laughs> All right. Thanks again, George, for sharing and coming on the show again. You always have very interesting insight on the markets. It's a pleasure, Dallas. Thank you for having me. And I, I hope some of your listeners will find this, this information useful. Yeah, definitely. All right. Catch us next time on another episode of the Post Money Plan podcast. <laughs>